Now please have your Bibles or devices open to Numbers chapter 16, beginning verse 41. Numbers 16 from 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But... 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. Our second Bible reading comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 7, beginning verse 11 and through to 25. Hebrews 7, beginning verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those online. Have a wonderful time at your uh, Bible study, six to waiters. Um, you may be confused given those Bible readings, but we are actually in a series in Leviticus, and as you can see on our title there, so 6, 8, all the way to 8.38. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us in your word for our good and in the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, uh, we, we know that you transform us to become more like Jesus uh, as we sit under your word. Uh, please do that again for us this morning as we look at this long section of Leviticus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I reckon most, if not even all of us here, would have either witnessed or at least taken part in a little informal social proceeding that tends to happen during our time at school, usually anywhere between, say, year five and year ten, give or take. It goes a little bit like this. Boy kind of likes girl. In my case, her name was Emma. And in the school play, I got cast as Robin Hood and she was cast as Maid Mary, and that was awkward. Boy might like to talk to girl and perhaps ascertain some understanding of what she thinks about him. But of course, boy is petrified at the prospect of talking to girl. He thinks so highly of her and values her, uh, the relationship or potential relationship with her so much that if he did or said something wrong, or if it turns out she was not interested in him, then it'll be both devastating and embarrassing. So what happens? Boy asks a friend, to go and work out what girl thinks about boy. Sometimes, and we should be two slides ahead now, sorry, sometimes the instructions are very specific and there's a complex 50-point plan to ensure subtlety and anonymity. And of course, the same thing happens from girl to boy perhaps with even more subtlety, and when it's the girl probably involving even more than one friend. This goes to show that we all instinctively and intuitively recognise the great value and importance of a mediator, a go-between, especially when it comes to relationships we value very highly. It's why in a wedding ceremony... We see the importance of having a third party to mediate the marriage covenant. Do you, man, take this woman to be your wife? Uh, do you, woman, take this man to be your husband? If so, then repeat after me. By the way, it turns out that Emma liked one of my friends better than she liked me. I think I'll go and eat worms. Now, in the Bible, by the time we get to the book of Leviticus... We're asking the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That is, how can a sinner come into the presence of the holy God and not be consumed? 
Now, of course, as we go through the book, we work out that the more important question is how can the holy God dwell with a sinful people, but we're not there yet. What is taken for granted is that a relationship with God is the most important and valuable relationship possible. And therefore, it should come as no surprise that God teaches his people that it's essential that they have a mediator. A go-between is essential for sinners to come into fellowship with God. Of course, they're not called a mediator. They are called a priest. So how does God teach Israel that having a mediator, that is a priest, is essential? And what significance does a priest add to the offering, to the sacrificial system that we started seeing from last week? And is a priest still essential for people to approach God today? Well, these are things that are addressed in varying degrees in today's section of Leviticus, which is chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through to the end of chapter 8. So I hope you've got your Bibles at the ready. And if you're taking notes, we're at point one in the outline. How does God teach Israel that a priest is essential? From Exodus chapter 19 all the way through to Numbers chapter 10, Israel are stationed at Mount Sinai. During that time, they meet with the holy God who has saved them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He has covenanted with them and given them his law so that he will be their God and they would be his people. He gave them instructions for building the tabernacle, a portable dwelling place, uh, so that he could live with his people. And one of his instructions for the design of the tabernacle involved ensuring that a menorah, that is a lampstand with uh, seven lamps, the menorah, that was put in the holy place was built and situated in such a way that light shone down onto the 12 loaves of bread, what's called the bread of the presence, which is also there. The light and the fire obviously represent God and the 12 loaves represent the tribes of Israel. So the symbolism is very clear. God's intention is that his people should live continually in his life-giving presence. It's also no surprise that the famous ironic blessing is, may his light shine upon you. But of course, that would be difficult on account of God's perfect holiness and the all-pervasive, death-sustaining sinfulness of humanity. So as Jono very helpfully showed last week, Leviticus kicks off with a series of sacrificial and substitutionary offerings. The bloody shed to pay for sin and the offering is burned so that it figuratively ascends into the presence of the Lord and so the sinner is considered atoned for and can thus enjoy fellowship with God. The types are listed uh, as the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the unintentional sin offering and the unrealized then realized guilt offering and uh, there's some possible selection of animals uh, and grain that you would use for those offerings. Collectively, they paint a big picture, a very stark picture. All sin, both realised and unrealised, needs to be paid for. The righteous wrath of the holy God against sinners needs to be turned aside. And the aim is to enjoy fellowship with God, which you can't do unless you're in love and charity with your neighbour. 
But of all the instructions given in chapters, uh, chapter 1 through to 6, verse 7, God deliberately does not give us the full picture. You would have had to be paying very careful attention to work that out because that seems very detailed, right? But he's not giving us the full picture. There's something quite incomplete about the instructions regarding the offerings that we saw last week. For example, with the burnt offering, the whole animal is burned up. But that's after it has been skinned. And so there's some ambiguity as to whether or not the skin is or isn't involved in the sacrifice. With the fellowship offering, only the internal organs and the fat of the animal are burned on the altar and we weren't told what happens to the rest of the the animal. With the grain offering, a portion is burnt on the altar and the rest belongs to Aaron and his sons, but we're not told what they're supposed to do with it. God has given the basic instructions but not the finer details, if you can imagine that, given how detailed it is. He has given half the picture, so we're wondering, what's the other half? Well, the other half comes as God now begins to instruct the priests on what their role is in presenting the offerings to the Lord. Back in chapter 1 and verse 2, Moses was told, speak to the Israelites, and that's when we get all the, uh, uh, the, the sacrifices. But now he has a different audience. At the beginning of our section, chapter 6, verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. And then it continues with regulations for the the priesthood. And as before, when God gave instructions about the offerings in the order of burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, guilt offering, so now he goes in the same order but for the priests except he doesn't. There's a really obvious change in the order. When at the heart of the sacrificial system, whereby the Israelites enjoy fellowship with God, the light of God, instead we see that there's a particular set of commands for the anointing, that is the ordaining of the priests to their continual ministry. The details for the fellowship offering are put after everything else. God wants to make a big point here. The message is clear. The ministry of the priest is central to your being in fellowship with God. And the whole of chapter 8, which I would delight to go through, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through it. But for the whole of chapter 8, it's actually about the process of getting the priests ordained for their ministry. And it's a very detailed process that uh, takes seven days. Now, as you and I, as far back as primary school recognize the importance of a mediator when it comes to relationships we value so as to emphasize the value he places on relationship with his people God in the very structure of the law necessitates priestly mediation now with all that in place what does the priest's role in the sacrificial system actually do for the people or to put it a slightly different way what significance does a priest add to the offerings. I guess it's high time we actually looked at some of the, the Bible text, some of the instructions. We won't go through all the text, otherwise we'd be here for hours, but I'll choose some of the instructions in this part of Leviticus that highlight the way that the priest's role increases our understanding of what's happening when sinners approach the holy God and remain unconsumed. We'll start with the very first part, 
which uh, is the instructions regarding the burnt offering. So from chapter 6 and verse 8, and I'll put the words on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. So, first up, it's practical. The priests maintain the system. They've got to clear out the ash, which would, you know, build up on the altar, for the old burnt offering, get rid of that to make way for the new. And you might have got the, the, the very faint impression that the fire needs to keep going. And must not go out. The fire needs to keep going and must not go out. The fire needs to keep going and must not go out. Presumably, the Israelites would divvy up the tribes and families so that everyone periodically has a turn at bringing their burnt offering for atonement. But the priest's job is to ensure that symbolically, atonement remains constant. And that's really, really important. Because if even for a second, the holy God is in the presence of sinful people for whom there is no atonement, he will maintain his holiness and therefore sinners will be judged with death under his holy wrath. Now, the, you can probably work out now the reason I chose that Bible reading from number 16. The, 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 the reading I chose for today gives a dreadful example, and there's more than one example of this actually happening. A number of people had gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron in front of God's tabernacle. They rejected the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and therefore, in effect, they rejected the atonement that God's chosen priesthood maintained. And so the wrath of the holy God breaks out and dead bodies start hitting the ground. For his holy wrath to be contained, atonement needs to be re-established and fast. And so we read in Numbers 16 from verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put incense in it, along with, notice, burning coals from the altar, that continuous fire, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. Imagine the scene, the bodies are dropping and you've got to sort of run and stay in head and then you know, get, it, get far enough to light the thing so as to, to contain the, the wrath. But Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them and one of the most astounding lines in scripture, he stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. He got far enough ahead and then it was contained. The priestly ministry with the burnt offering, teaches us that atonement needs to be constant for sinners to safely dwell in the presence of the holy God, who has a righteous and proper anger towards sin. I wonder if you can already see how this teaching emphasises and gives a great appreciation for the fact that as Christians, 
Our atonement is eternally constant. Jesus' once-for-all atoning sacrifice was done with his own body, and that body was the one in which he rose from death and ascended to the true presence of God the Father in the real heavenly tabernacle. And because Jesus can never die again, he always lives to intercede for us, then it is absolutely 100% impossible that the righteous wrath of God against our sin can ever be poured out upon us. If Jesus is your mediator, if Jesus is your priest, then no matter how grave or numerous your sins may be, they are eternally covered. Jesus, with his perfect, once-for-all atoning sacrifice, has ascended the mountain of the Lord on your behalf, and that's a fire that will never go out. Now, because the priests have to keep the altar fire burning, it's a good idea to make sure they get fed. In the regulations for the grain offering, the portion that is not burned up uh, is given to the priesthood to be eaten in the sanctuary. With the grain offering, as uh, we'll see with some of the other offerings, God himself maintains the ministry of the priesthood. After the grain offering, we get the regulations for the centrepiece, which is assumed to be the fellowship offering, but it's actually the ordination offering uh, because you need ordained priesthood to have the fellowship with the Lord. Uh, And we see that all carried out, those regulations are listed in chapter 6 and they're carried out in chapter 8. But when you stand back and look at the big picture, which I've had to do a lot of work for this week, of all the symbolism, you realise that the priests, they need to represent God to the people as much as they need to represent the people to God. We learn that they need to be completely holy, or as holy as is possible under this system, and stay in the presence of God. They can't leave the sanctuary for seven days, the number signifying completeness. They have to be as much a representative of God to the people as they will be a representative of the people to God. Then after that, we come to the regulations for the sin offering or the unrealized and and, and then discovered sin offering. And again, we see that the parts not burned up are given by God to the priesthood so that they eat when they're on the job. They can't just knock off and go home. That's not going to work. But then we have this extra little bit of detail that therefore stands out in verse 27. So we'll look at this one. It says... Whatever touches any of the flesh, that is the the remaining flesh of the sin offering that the the priest can eat, whatever touches any of that that flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is spattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. But if it's cooked in a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Originally, you read that and you think, that's a bit strange, what's going on here? Well, the picture here is that Because something has been offered to God and the penalty for sin has been paid through the the shedding of the blood, remember, there's blood splashed on the altar, then it truly is holy. It really does belong to God. It's holy. And that which is holy is not to come into contact with that which is 
unholy. Even a bit of blood splatter that, you know, like splashed on the, the garment when you did that. You've got to quickly wash that off. Or even the pot you use to cook some of the meat, break that pot or, or scour it till it's, you know, it's absolutely not having holy and, and unholy together. Whatever is holy cannot come into contact with that which is unholy. God emphasizes this point a little further on where after spelling out the priest's role in the initial five types of offering plus the one for ordination, he then gives some general principles for the priest to uphold and and we see one of them, chapter 7 verse 19 in the the general principles section, meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten, that is meat that's now holy, it must be burned, burned up. As for other meat, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. That is, if you get the holy and you combine it with someone who's unclean, unholy, I mean, they're eating it, it's like going inside them, right? You can't do that. Cut them off. Verse 21, anyone who touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean creature that moves along the ground, which we're going to get the details of what that involves later on in Leviticus, and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering, they eat any of the holy stuff belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. The point is very clear. That which is holy is not to come into contact with that which is unholy. This stands behind one of the very big reasons that uh, sexual sins are things Christians are taught to be especially wary of. We should be wary of all sins, but sexual sins get a, get a special wariness about them in the New Testament. You see, Jesus' blood has made us holy, and if I should take that which is holy and unite it with something that is not, then I'm kind of rubbishing my saviour. I know his work is incorruptible, but it's like I'm trying to corrupt it. Then we come to the last, although because of the ordination, it's now the second last, offering, the guilt offering. And you'll probably be pleased to know, for the sake of time, that the same priestly regulations apply for the guilt offering as they do with a sin offering. So, for example, chapter 7 and verse 7, the same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering. They belong to the priest who makes atonement for them. And uh, incidentally, in this little bit of legislation we find out what happens with the skin of the burnt offerings in verse 8. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself. So you're burning the whole animal, give or take the hide for the sake of the priest, not only having food, but, you know, clothes or blankets or whatever you make with an animal hide. So again, the details are filled out in such a way that we see the necessity of priestly mediation in that God maintains the priesthood along with the notion that holiness and unholiness don't mix so if you had to summarize what the priestly ministry adds to our learning it's that the sacrificial system is designed not only to bring sinners into the presence of the holy god but also to teach them about that god with whom they can now have fellowship. We see the nature and the character of the holy God in the way that we approach him, in the way that the sacrifices are carried out. And that's why it ought to come as no surprise that when the ultimate, once for all sacrifice for sin sin was carried out, 
we see there the character of the holy God more sharply than anywhere else. We see his absolute abhorrence at human sinfulness, the disaster that happens when the holy comes into contact with the profane and the holy son of God takes the sin of the world upon himself and therefore God's righteous wrath is poured out. We see that far from what so many popular scholars and apologists try to tell us, that God is a God of wrath and yet that that in no way diminishes but rather emphasises the fact that he is a God of love. He provided the perfect priest who made the perfect sacrifice so that unworthy sinners can enjoy his life-giving presence both now and into eternity. Before the ordination of the priests takes place in uh, chapter 8, we get the priestly regulations for the one offering that has so far been left out to make way for the ordination, that is the fellowship offering. It turns out, would you believe, there's actually a few kinds of fellowship offering. They can be expressions of thankfulness or the fulfilment of a vow or what's called a free will offering. You can read this in the, the back half of chapter 7, which I hope you have or you will. Uh, the free will offering is something that within God's parameters for worship, one can offer at any time for any legitimate reason. Now, for the sake of time, again, I'm going to give a bare summary of what the regulations for the fellowship offering signify. Put simply, they teach us that priests and the rest of the Israelites are on the same footing when it comes to enjoying God's life-giving fellowship. See, in the, in the instructions for this kind of offering, the fellowship offering, the worshipper has a much bigger role than usual and the priest has a much smaller role than usual. In 7 verse 23, God goes back to addressing the Israelites. He's, he's done addressing the priests and he starts speaking to the Israelites in general. And in the regulations for the fellowship offerings, the worshipper eats some of the offering. Some of the holiness that the priest would enjoy is now enjoyed by the Israelite. The big picture is that even though the priests are set aside for an essential role, that doesn't make them any more or less in fellowship with God than anybody else. In fact, this preempts what God would eventually do with his people uh, on this side of the cross. He would make all of his people, that is all Christians, today a kingdom of priests. Of course, we're not priests in the Old Testament sense, but we're people who have been made holy, set apart to serve the Lord, and we hold out the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ to anyone who might accept it and therefore be saved and join us. And that brings us to the final point. Is a priest still essential for people to approach God today? Well, the answer is an emphatic 100% yes. For anyone today who wants to have a relationship with God, a priest is essential. In our natural state, we're all dead in transgressions and sins and we're deserving of the wrath of God. And even though God has supernaturally intervened and raised us up with Christ... This side of Jesus' return, we still have a residual sinful nature and we live in a fallen world. So we need a mediator, a holy priest, in order to have fellowship with God. 
But there is only one priest who's fit for the job. There is only one priest who is truly able to represent humanity before God as much as he represents God before humanity. That's because he's fully human and he's fully God. He is the priest who made the perfect once-for-all blood sacrifice by which our sin and guilt, whether realised or not, are completely paid for, by which God's holy wrath is turned aside and which brings us into fellowship with God and therefore with one another. He is not a guy wearing funny robes who will sit in a box and listen to you confess your sins as if he can somehow mediate on God's behalf. No, he's a guy who has paid for all your sins and has made it possible for you to speak to God directly, anytime, anywhere. His name is Jesus, of course, and God himself tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. And so the first and most obvious implication is that for anyone who is not yet a follower of Jesus... You need a priest. Quick, call the priest, if that's you. You've got no chance by yourself when you come face to face with the holy God. There'll be no atonement and you'll face his wrath in hell. Repent now and say to God that you want Jesus to be your priest. And from this day, start living under Jesus' perfect priesthood. The second implication is about the way a church views its pastors. You see, vocational ministers are not like Old Testament priests. We, I, do not offer sacrifices on behalf of my congregation. I do not mediate between God and the congregation. Because Jesus is the priest of us all, we all enjoy equal fellowship with God and one another. In that sense, we are all a priesthood of believers. But this can sometimes be a little bit tricky for Christians to remember because like the Old Testament priests, in the Anglican Church at least, pastors get their living allowance, mostly if not exclusively, from the giving of the congregation members. And like the Old Testament priests, we seek to apply the word of God both to ourselves and our hearers, which Paul teaches to Timothy. And it's important that we remember, we've got to hold those things in balance in the way that we approach uh, our pastors. Um, One of the big difficulties in our sort of world and culture is that when I give towards something, I've got to it's hard for me not to think that I should expect some sort of degree. So that is, I'll approach the transaction from a consumerist mindset. And so I might think of my pastor as the one who ought to do this, that and the other for me in a way that kind of puts me in a... I'm the congregation and they're the clergy and there's an us and them kind of a mentality, which you've got to actually take away there. You've got to say, well, we're a priesthood of believers. We all share in the ministry of that atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we hold out to everyone. We need to see ourselves more as the partnership than the producer and consumer in ministry. Uh, That's something that uh, I personally, and therefore I imagine everyone else, needs to sort of keep reminding myself of uh, when it comes to the way that I think about pastoring uh, and, and being a congregation member. 
Let me conclude in prayer, and uh, I don't know whether time will permit or not, but Jono can be the, the one who decides whether or not we have a question time uh, afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your teaching to us in Leviticus. We thank you that uh, you've given us uh, the perfect priest who made the perfect once-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sin, that he ascended into your presence and that he ever lives to intercede for us. And that therefore we have all been made holy, we are all a priesthood of believers and that we have the privilege of holding out uh, that one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for any and every, everyone who you would call uh, to join us. It's in his name we give thanks. Amen. I think we might um, not have time for questions this morning um i'm sorry if you've got questions you could you could always send them through and i'll pass them on to ben perhaps just put your name on them so that we know who um, to get in touch with uh we're going to continue to come before god in prayer let's pray our lord god almighty and loving heavenly father you are worthy of all glory and praise and honor and power for you are god over all you created all things you sustain all things we praise you as lord and god we praise you for your glory, for your goodness, that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet you do not leave the guilty unpunished. You uphold righteousness and justice. Our Father, enlarge our picture of you and your glory. Grow us to know you better to love you more. Father, forgive us our sin for the ways that we ignore you and your word, for the ways that we promote ourselves, for our pride and arrogance. Please forgive us for our slowness to heed your word, for our failure to repent. And lead us to truly repent of, your, of our sin, to turn from it and to live godly and holy lives to live in obedience to you for your glory and for our joy. And Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus our sin has been dealt with and we are free to live as your people, adopted into your family. Father, we thank and praise you for your goodness, kindness and mercy. And Father, we have so much uh, so much to be thankful for. We thank you that you care for us, that you graciously teach us through your word, encouraging us, correcting us as we need it. Thank you for giving us your spirit, for pointing us to, to Christ, to, to renew us in the image of Christ. Father, we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ, for the encouragement of, of walking together in following Jesus. And we thank you for life and health and strength and the opportunities to live for Jesus day by day. Father, we thank you for our partnership in the gospel with Gregory Hills Anglican and with Night Church. We thank you for opening the doors before us for Gregory Hills to meet in the new school at Gledswood Hills. Thank you for the principal, Lisa, for her openness and for the good relationship that Gav has with her. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Gregory Hills as they adjust to a new location with new routines and challenges. 
Please motivate them by your grace to us in Jesus and by a desire to see the gospel grow and impact the lives of the people in the local area. Give Gav wisdom, love, energy to lead the church and please bless their labours to see your kingdom grow. And Father, we pray for our church. This year has been challenging in so many ways and it is hard for us to, to not all be able to meet together. Father, through this time, please keep us anchored in you. Keep us looking for ways to love, serve and support one another. And Father, we thank you that despite the, and even amidst COVID-19, that you are building your church, that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We ask you to sustain us, to grow us, to grow your kingdom. And we ask that you would bring an end to this pandemic. Lastly, Father, we pray for the youth ministry of our parish. We thank you for those who lead our various youth ministries, for Ben and the Unite Youth Leadership Team, for those who teach and lead our Year 6 to 8 Bible studies, for those who are involved in mentoring our youth. We thank you for the gift of all these people who assist parents in training and discipling their children. And we ask you to encourage and strengthen them in these ministries. Please continue to provide the right people to oversee and lead these ministries. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.